this crazy world we live in, when people use the word geek, it can create certain impressions. In reality, geek culture has never been more mainstream. Let's learn about the real people behind the stereotype. I'm your super dummy Paul. This is Geek. My name is Seth Singleton. If you've heard my voice before, you might have heard it on a couple of podcasts that I host, Storytelling with Seth. I also am a host of a soccer podcast called Stories from the Pitch. But if you're a big fan of nerd culture, you might most often have heard me on the DC Comics News Podcast Network, where I hang out with a great group of people like Steve J. Ray, Kelly Gaines, Brad Felicki, Josh Rayner, Kendra Hale, um, quite an amazing assortment of viewpoints and ideas. And we'll either talk about the uh, week's news on the weekly podcast. We've done a very irreverent follow along episode by episode for the Harley Quinn show on uh, DC Universe now on HBO Max. And Kitty Cuoco, if you're out there, like, or Kelly. Oh, no. No, I'm not sure what it is. I think it's Kelly. Anyways. Um, She's amazing, and she brought the life to the character that we love so much that we create a podcast for. And you can also find me hosting a podcast called The Spinner Rack for DC Comics News. It's my top five picks from DC Comics each and every week. And I've also been lucky enough to hang out with uh, our good friend Tony. Uh, I was on to talk about Something is Killing the Children and a couple of other um, really cool independent comics with him. So that's where you could recognize my voice. I'm, I'm not like a big social media followed guy. So it, it's hard for me to imagine that you've seen me there. <laughs> I'm there. I just know that from the numbers I've got, it's just not, that's not most likely where you've heard. Yeah. You do seem to do a lot of podcasting. You, you're always popping up somewhere. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's been a funny development. It, 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 it was not something I anticipated back in like 2017 when I first started doing it. It, it was a lark of all things. I was uh, going to a game developers conference because I was working. I'd, I'd gone from working a retail um, cannabis shop job for a year and a half, almost two years, uh, to have insurance and pay bills and sort of do a responsible stint in my life and had left that just trying to get back into writing and i had a good friend who was starting a video game company we were going to the game developers conference in san francisco which is a big deal out here and in the gaming community people from around the world and i was part of the story crafting team for a game we were working on and as i walked up i was like i have no idea what i'm about to walk into and i need to document this in some way better than just a pen and paper so i ended up getting the anchor app and using my phone and if you listen to my first one, it's like, okay, so I'm here at the GDC. I have no idea what's going on. It's like maybe four minutes and then it's done. And that was my first sort of four way, foray into it. And then I started looking at it as this like way of expanding. Um, one, I, I've been told I have a voice that works well for this. I can't guarantee this. There's no chart that I can measure myself on. And like, it's like an aptitude test or something. But um, when it was something that was noticed by others, when I was either a teacher or, say, in grad school, suddenly I found myself being approached by people like, hey, we're doing this thing. Would you mind reading it? 
for this thing we're doing. Sure. Okay. So I tried to take that idea and continue it with, okay, if I'm telling stories on paper, am I only trying to do one thing as a writer? Is there a way I can take what I'm doing as a writer and expand my creativity and also my literal voice as well as my writer and author's voice through podcasting? And through that exploration, I launched uh, Storytelling with Seth, and then I was tapped by uh, Josh Rayner from DC Comics News, who asked me if I would like to be on a podcast episode. And then I was invited back. And then somewhere down the road, not too much long after, he said, hey, how would you feel about just doing a solo show where you pick your top five books from DC Comics each week? I was like, are are you sure? I'm, I'm new to all this. I'm just figuring it out. I have like very little idea of what I'm doing. And if you listen to those first episodes, it, they could be like almost an hour long where I'm like page by page with books that I like, <laughs> panel by panel, trying to do way too much. And it, it became this thing that it, it, it's this funny little mystery. I was that kid when I played soccer who uh, the other kids would be like, oh, I got a knot in my shoe. And I'd be like, give me a shoe. And they're like, why? And I was like, because I love knots. There's something about untangling this thing and in the process all the ways you get to like look at it and podcasting has become like one of those knots i can pick it up and twist it and every time it feels like i'm discovering a new way either to do or consider when it comes to how you can tell stories it's worked really well for me i was a big fan of uh early um I guess it would it would fall into the um, early, early history of Great Britain and the Isles. I got really wrapped up in Gaelic, Celtic, Druidic periods with the, the endless knot. And as I was moving out of a young soccer player into my teenage years, it was like, I love knots. And you got this endless one? Like, come on, man. Are you kidding me? Like, someone out there is like, you know, let's see what he does with this. and. Um, yeah, it, it, it's become something that, that stayed with me, this idea of it's knots. It's changing the way you look at it. Because if you ever look at one of those endless knots, try and unravel it. You'll spend more time looking at it differently than you will getting anything done, you think. But you're looking at it differently. It's already <laughs> changing you. A little while back, I got connected with a company called Hapsi. Um and they're actually based, uh, the uh, founder of that company, co-founder, is actually based in, uh, in England as well. And it, his company is simply to, their goal is to create comics that make people smile, but also that offer a really positive viewpoint. And uh, the parent, one of the parent companies is called Clean Planet E. And they're looking to develop a lot of different resources to promote the cleaner earth. And I... Uh, made contact with them and was offered the opportunity to work on a character that they were thinking about called Greedy Greg. And Greedy Greg is driven by greed. And in the pursuit, he usually does a series of very comical things, thinking that he can make a quick buck, only to have them generally unravel. For example, he thinks that carbon footprint is something that he can make a killing on. But his concept of a carbon footprint is, well, all these other ways seem really expensive. But if I just go out and get some coal and then crush it and make it into a footprint shape, I can sell carbon footprint 
uh, reduction. And this way people, <laughs> and, and this is his sort of like philosophy. Um, you know, he sees uh, solar panels on buildings. And he's like, you know, if you can build solar panels that are closer to the sun, you get the energy first. So he has this idea of like building a tower that's covered in solar panels taller than anything else in the city, because this way he'll be guaranteed to get the most solar power before anybody else. And, <laughs> and generally his, his sort of thinking is always about making the buck and therefore he can even take the best ideas and mangle them horribly. And um, so I've been lucky enough to work with uh, a great uh, artist, Afif Amrula who is really fun, creates these very simple, but also um, very, just very keen and thoughtful illustrations for these comic scripts, uh, scripts that I create. They're available on uh, hapsy.com and they put out a new one like every other week, uh, every other week, as far as greedy Greg, they actually have a new comic that goes up almost every day. And I've been lucky enough to be a part of that, but I am not an artist. I would love to one day figure out how they make those beautiful things. Because <laughs> for me, anytime you watch someone uh, who's an artist, it's where they start that always blows me away. Because what they end up with is this amazing thing, but I'm looking at that frame of reference that they've chosen that then creates this whole perspective and everything else. And it doesn't seem significant when they're working on it. In fact, until they start filling it in, they're drawing all of these uh, sort of scaling and scoping lines that are going to give them, you know, a continued frame of reference. But for me, it's just like, <sighs> I don't understand this knot. I don't understand this knot. I want, and then at some point I will, but I feel like it's so far advanced by the time that I do, I'm like, well, yeah, I figured it out. You know, at, at some point, um, children will understand what different colors you're holding up mean. And I, I've just developed that childlike enough awareness that I can see what he's doing. but. That, that's my level of uh, awareness with art. It's absolutely gorgeous. I think it's one of those things where um, I can only imagine seeing the world that way. I love how I can see the world as a writer. I can only imagine how beautiful the world must look if you're an artist. Like it just, I, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> they're, they're, they're quite phenomenal. Um, it's it's kind of hard not to gush when you get the chance to talk to so like on the DC comics news, we got to talk with Liam Sharp. I actually was talking with him on a Twitter chat and I just say, Hey man, would you come on? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, oh. and then you look at these beautiful painted things that he's done. He's absolutely just stunningly gorgeous. I mean, recently he's gone from like your traditional comic to this just beautiful mix of science, art, computers. It's fairly genius. <laughs> and I just think to myself, man, what does the world look like to you? You know, I mean, just, I can't imagine. <laughs> I do think writing is an art. I, I, I will allow myself to wear the artist title for that, but not, not like those people with pencils and pens and charcoal and paint and other beautiful, you know, <laughs> the ones who pick up a stick and walk out on the sand and two minutes later, you're like, I don't even know why I'm out here anymore because you just made sand look beautiful. Like these people. <laughs> because I just got interrupted, I'll start out by saying I'm a proud dog papa. This is my little boy, Bruno. Uh, he's one of two. I've also got a pit bull named Fiji. These are my babies. Um, as, a, as a proud papa, um, this is something outside of my geek culture, but it's also something where if you do follow me on social media or happen to see me out there, 
this is one of the things you'll most often see. I, I've given lectures where I'm like, hi, this is my dog. He's joined us for today. This is how it goes. And usually it's not much more than that. He wants to hop up. He wants to look around. He wants to cry a little. And then he's going to go run off because he realizes like I'm clearly working on something else and he's a little annoyed. <laughs> but uh, let's see. I'm, uh, I'm an adjunct professor at Siena Heights University. I teach writing there with uh, our good friend, Mr. Tony. Um, I've been lucky enough to really do everything from your basic English 101 and 102 to uh, advanced writing, I've even taught creative writing. Um, I have a Master of Fine Arts in, uh, in writing. I uh, started writing when I was 17. I actually started writing professionally when I was 17. I had written for, you know, different local publications. And then I ended up working for my high school newspaper. And it was around the end of my junior year that my advisor pulled me aside and was like, hey, here's the deal. Every year I pick a student and that student becomes an intern at the local newspaper for their senior year. You write a column once a week and um, they basically ask for who is my best writer. This year it's you. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, okay. And then I'm going into a professional newsroom with people who have degrees. And I started <laughs> writing. Uh, I, my first big thing was that summer. So I covered the local county fair and then moved into being a sports intern. And usually the position continues through your senior year and then it's done. But I said, look, I'm going to be going to a community college nearby. I was a, uh, I was a young athlete and kind of counter to what's expected of nerd culture. I love sports. I, I loved playing sports as a kid. I was a huge, um, basically by the time I was four, my parents had bought me a pair of cleats and put shin guards on me because at three, I got a soccer ball from my grandfather, who was a pilot, picked one up when he was uh, in a layover in Germany and said, hey, give this to the boy apparently overseas, they kick it all over the place and they love it. And I did. And we had a quarter of an acre backyard in this uh, really kind of rural area of Long Island, New York, which is where I was born. And I would just run up and down the backyard, kicking the hell out of that thing, just so in love with the feeling of like running and kicking. Um, they immediately got me into soccer. I became a huge soccer football, just lost my head over it played wherever I could, whenever I could. And then at the age of 17, I tore my ACL and I had to rethink everything I thought I was doing with my life. I had all these possibilities based on what I could do physically. I was a runner, soccer player, and suddenly I've got this ruined knee. In fact, to give it a perspective, that was when I was 17, that was in 1994. It's now 2021. And on June 2nd of this year, I ended up having total knee replacement on my left knee at the age of 44. Yeah, I'm considered quite young to be doing it. Most of the time they don't. But I had a, a really good sports medicine orthopedic surgeon who said, you're at stage four arthritis, man. This thing, it's only going to get worse. Your hip, your back, everything will, you know, degrade unless you uh, go for this. And I was game. I was tired of being in pain. I said, sure, sign me up. And now I, I love it. It's been one of the most wonderful things I ever did. I wish I could have done it 20 years ago. 
but I had uh, I, I'd realized that whatever these dreams and aspirations of mine were, they, they weren't a guarantee. My body had broken. There was a chance it could break again. I needed to take advantage of the other skills that I had. One was writing. So I continued to pursue writing as an intern for the next year, putting myself through community college, and then I ended up needing more money in order to go to said school. So I had to get a warehouse job, ended up transferring to San Francisco State, completed my uh, my uh, English degree in creative writing there, got my Bachelor of Arts, and then I tried to make my, my way in the world. I uh, ended up um, following in the footsteps of my mother, who had been a fifth grade teacher, and she got me involved first with a corrective reading program, got me registered with the district. I took a took a test that qualifies me to understand the basic subjects being taught at school and became a teacher. Did that for a little while, but uh, I was a sub and long-term sub. Because of my degrees, I could do a little bit more, but we also suffer from a lot of issues with uh, pay for teachers. And unfortunately, um, there was a strike within about a year, year and a half of my working. And suddenly I've got, you know, fully credentialed teachers next to me in the sub pool. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is a bad. So I went from that back to the newspaper that I had written for at 17. I'd moved back home. I'd uh, made a brief foray to Los Angeles and that fell apart very quickly. I was with someone and we didn't work out, which meant there was really no place for me there except with the person I was with who was pursuing a career and had ended up moving back home, ended up working for the newspaper that I had started with when I was 17. And then gradually saw myself needing to move back out to the uh, Bay Area. I wanted to pursue writing. And I felt like I also needed to push myself. So I got back out to the Bay Area and enrolled in my Master of Fine Arts program from CCA. And I was lucky enough to complete that and then sort of continue uh, sort of wandering. And in the process, I discovered some interesting things along the way. Um, I had two more knee surgeries while I was in college. So I had tried out for the, uh, I'd played for my community college and then I was trying out for San Francisco State and I could feel the pain in my knee increasing during tryouts. And it was about a month or two later, I tried to do something and it hurt. And I ended up having my third knee surgery. I'm 22 years old. I'm exhausted. I've only had, yeah, I'm 22 with three knee surgeries. And I needed to uh, figure out a new thing. I enjoyed uh, boxing for a while, became an amateur. Um, ended up doing a few fights here and there when I had moved back to uh, my hometown. I found a, a fighting club about um, half hour away, ended up fighting there for about five months and really sort of enjoyed, you know, pushing myself physically, but there was always limits I could feel with my knee just sort of telling me like, this is fun and this is great, but it hurts. And, you know, it's, it's worth considering the time you're investing in this, in those less painful pursuits. <laughs> like you know, with your writing, take the time that you're spending on this, which hurts and put it into writing, which doesn't hurt as much. And, um, along the way, uh, it was pretty interesting. Um, yeah, made some fun discoveries, but it, a lot of it came from that whole contradiction of being an athlete who loved air culture, who, you know, uh, I wasn't supposed to like these things, but I, I did like it, either camp I was in, it was, 
and and that was easy to uh you know compare i grew up in a very religious household very very conservative um so which comics were not terribly well accepted at first and were a difficult thing to sort of convince and also to be aware of like if i wanted to share something i needed to share something that wouldn't offend so that this way i could get them on board and that didn't always work either so i was also used to being you know in that environment which is very us against them especially uh my experience from the church was you know there's here where it's safe and there's outside in the big bad dangerous world where evil and wickedness lurks and <laughs> your very soul is at risk and these are what you must be prepared for but it was interesting to then have it be that same thing where it's like hold on so wait i can't love sports if i love comics i can't love comics if i love sports okay i guess i'm gonna have to figure out a marriage of these two of my own somehow i mean unfortunately um the belief system that I was raised in that my, my mom, who's still alive, uh, adheres to, uh, and my dad, um, who recently passed back in November, um, even with the current climate, there were things that we would end up disagreeing about because <laughs> of beliefs. Uh, for me and him, it started when I was playing soccer and I had a teammate who I went to visit his house and there were giant chunks of the floor missing it was this tiny little shack and there were pieces of driftwood laid over the giant missing pieces of the foundation and that was where my friend and his brother and a couple of like very young infants under three i want to say lived and my friend was on reduced price lunches me and my dad got a huge argument about whether or not he deserved to get free lunches provided by the government and <laughs> i was like yeah, he does, because his, his mom remarried. The stepfather does not care for him or his brother. He he needs some sort of support because he's a minor and no one's taking care of him. You know, this is one of the few benefits he gets in life. And, and that was pretty much the beginning of a whole series of conflicts. And yeah, even now, um, the fact that I chose to get vaccinated is an issue with uh, some of the people I grew up with. And you know, you sort of look at these national conversations and there's part of you that's like, I don't want to be in this. I mean, I know that I am and I know what I believe and why I believe it. And yet at the same time, I don't want to consider the possibility that, that this is something that, you know, is another way for us to you know, be separated, find conflict. But unfortunately, um, it's been this, this interesting thing of, you know, what I am allowed to do and what I choose to do and choosing to do things that are wrong, perhaps, whether it's read comics or <laughs> uh, write fiction that, that isn't based on one religion or, or something like that. You know, there's, there's that idea of, you know, what is the right thing to do? What is the thing you are supposed to be doing? What is the thing you should be doing? Um, which for almost any writer, that's the great conflict, you know? <laughs> You really doing this? Should you be doing this? Are you doing this the right way? You know, it, could your time be spent better doing anything else? You know, anything else? You know, is what you're doing right now earning the money you could get if you were making fast food sandwiches? You know, like there there comes a point where you know you're you're sort of like, look, there's a payoff down the road, <laughs> but this is the investment part, and uh, you know, 
living with that choice, it, it feels like it's just an extension of that, that conflict growing up. But it also feels like it's that thing that I'm used to this. You know, at some point, you're going to have conflict. And the more often it happens, the more you can recognize that it's happening, not feel surprised or overwhelmed by it, and then manage what you can manage um, if you're lucky. Do you think that conflict has helped your writing in a way because you've because you've had to navigate life in such what I guess going back to your knots you've had to untie the knot in every step of your life just to do everything do you think it's helped your writing because you can understand all the little pieces of life I think so I I know one of the hardest things for me to do because I've spent time in two camps is to be in one camp and explain the other side's position without defending it, but explaining where the rationalization or the reasoning comes from, what the basis is in so many ways. Now, one of the biggest challenges is how do you write characters that are believable? And one of the ones that's been pointed out most recently is a villain that is not a complete, just like cesspool of evil. You know, that there are villains who do horrible things, terrible things, but their reasoning, their rationalization comes from a place that when you look at it closely enough, it it's not as far removed as we think. It's it's not some like, you know, vile thing that crawled out of the abyss. You know, this is a person who could have been your neighbor, your friend. In some cases, some of the worst villains are. You know, there's there are a few things more tragic in stories when you you realize that that person that someone cares and loves the most is the the thing that they now are like hating or fighting or fearful of. And because of that, I feel that it has given me the opportunity to use that insight in my writing, to write about characters that are not good, that are not bad, that are people. And that in that process, like the rest of us, there's what they want to do. There's what they have to do. There's what they're trying to do. and then you know, then there's the rest of the world. <laughs> it's just, you know, always going to be part of the challenges. You know, if, if you want to succeed at anything at some point, you're, you're learning to figure out what it is you have to do so that you can do what you want to do. And that is a, a very popular recognition and a very familiar understanding for a lot of us. So if I can continue to apply that in my writing, yes, I, I do feel it continues to strengthen it because the idea is, yeah, I've been there, you've been there, we've been there. You know, depending on the scale of degree, that feeling of of loss, of struggle, of heartache, of redemption, of um, desire, all of those things, we we share them in, in different ways. I, uh, I I had a lot of fun working on a story where a character is. Uh, young boxer and he's in love with a girl but unfortunately that girl is in love with another boxer who is much more attractive and amazing and because he's so focused on the girl that he wants he doesn't notice that there's another girl who's interested in him and the four of them end up having this really interesting overlap relationship that comes to a head in a fight where suddenly <laughs> the attraction shift between the four characters and the reasons, you know, are as personal and intrinsic as 
each of us. But the idea should be something where it's like, you know, there's that moment when you see someone that when they're doing something they're amazing at, suddenly become someone different in your eyes. They, they, they change. And in that transformation, you're suddenly looking at them in a whole new sense of understanding. And true love, love at first sight can be born in that moment. People can suddenly see someone doing something gorgeous. I always loved a great short story in which a person doesn't like another character until they end up taking scuba diving lessons from them. And then they watch this person who they've considered to be just like unpleasant to the eye become this like graceful, beautiful, majestic creature in the water. And the transformation is suddenly like, I, I, who are you? You know, I, I, I thought I knew who you were this whole time and you just, you came out of the cocoon. So I, I do feel like that awareness is, is something that I didn't have before. And the more that I continue to gain it, yeah, the more it improves my writing. First, there was the DC Comics News podcast. Then came the Spinner Rack. And now, the third show brought to you by the guys that brought you all that other stuff I just mentioned. I Am The Night. A story about the stories. A show celebrating Batman, the animated series. Week by week, episode by episode. Just when you thought it was safe to put on a pair of headphones. I am the Knight. Why, hello there. I'm Seth Singleton, and I'm here to tell you about Madpup, a Harley Quinn cast. Harley Quinn? Harley fucking Quinn? What have we learned from this crazy show? Making Bat Shark repellent relevant since 1966. Oh, look, Ogre. And we've gone completely off the rails. I hear the bat signal. Shut up and battle me, nuts. I definitely do not fuck that. In need of an adult-sized nemesis. Humans make good fertilizer. You can't fuck with Lois Lane. For fuck's sake. I'm a damn good cop. Lot of lasers. Mmm. Educational and informative. The DC Comics News Podcast Network presents Mad Love, the Harley Quinn cast. <laughs> Back to you, Seth. So, tell us your thoughts. We'd love to hear from everyone out there. Or not. That's really up to all of you. Fuckers. Picture this, someone who knows nothing about comics. Someone who knows comics from movies, TV, and video games. A complete ultra comics nerd. You pick the character you want us to talk about. You send us the questions you want answered. You make the show. A podcast by fans. Or fans. Making new fans. Superheroes. Or dummies. Part of the Comics in Motion Podcast Network. All work and no play makes for a dull way to live, don't you agree? Join me, Adam Ray, and a very special guest each week on The Hostile Takeover, where they and I discuss their favourite game, PC, console, board game or tabletop, whatever they decide, and what we will talk about. Let gaming be the way forward. Working's too much. It's time for a Hostile Takeover, coming soon to a podcast feed near you. Hi, 
My name's Steve, and I'm here to tell you all about the DC Comics News Podcast. Every week, my friends and I sit down and discuss everything DC. Movies, TV and streaming, comic books, and everything in between. But don't just take my word for it. Here are a couple of our sponsors. Listen to the DC Comics News Podcast. It's audio justice. <laughs> no, no, no. It's audio chaos. These wackos are crazier than I am. Well, maybe you're both right. Whatever the case, you can find the DC Comics News Podcast on every podcast platform. Apple Podcasts. Google Play. Spotify. Stitcher. And everywhere else you find podcasts. So, um, can I go now? Let him go. He did everything you asked. <laughs> Hello, listeners. This is Tony Farina from DC Comics News and an occasional guest on Comics in Motion. I'm pleased to announce a new show called Indie Comics Spotlight. Each week, my guests and I will be taking a deep dive into a current title or a classic graphic novel from a publisher other than the big two. Consider this show the best of the rest. My hope is that we'll bring new readers to independent comics and give old readers a chance to share their thoughts. Join me each week in the Comics in Motion feed in your favorite podcast catcher. I saw... Return of the Jedi in a drive-in in 1983. And I'd seen Star Wars on television, um, you know, when they would at some point eventually do that network premiere and it would show up with lots of commercial interruptions. But I was enraptured. I remember thinking I understood and then seeing that climactic confrontation between Luke and Vader and the Emperor and like this whole scale of suffering, I, you know, again, also growing up in a religious environment where uh, I was raised in a Pentecostal church, which is very, um, it's a very interesting branch of Christianity that can fall into some scopes that some might have called cultish, um, depending on the branches that they've gone into. And one of the biggest things that's pushed is the uh, the idea, especially around Easter, of the suffering that Jesus went through and the scale and the immensity and the depth and the. And so there I see this poor Luke writhing on the floor, you know, and suffering the same agony that I'm taught in Sunday school. So that was a, a really early connection that um, the first Superman movie changed my life. Um, I've got you. Or you've got me. Who's got you? Lois Lane to, to Superman in that moment with the helicopter. Um, watching a man fly in, in this like gorgeous, beautiful sense with the music. And forget about it. I mean, I was, I was hooked by then with those guys. Um, Batman was my, you know, my favorite addition to the Super Friends, the Super Friends cartoons. I distinctly remember. I remember... Voltron changing my life and then I remember there was the uh the Macross series that became Robotech and I saw animated characters like die and my brain sort of like I, I don't understand this isn't you know um 
and it was so under the radar for me because there were certain things because of how I was raised that I wasn't allowed to watch because He-Man couldn't be the master of the universe because other people are. Um, couldn't watch the Smurfs because Gargamel performs witchcraft and sorcery. Uh, so there were these certain things that I go to like, you know, school as a kid and everyone's talking about what's been going on. And I'm like, I don't know. <clears throat> I'm not allowed to watch that. But I found these other little things that hadn't reached the national scale. Um, my parents were big, Pat Robertson uh, and uh, oh, the guy from the PTL. Who's, uh, whose name now is suddenly forgetting me, Jim Baker and guys like that. And they these were national issues. These were things that these televangelists could hold up a picture or something like that and say, this is evil. It's pervasive. It's insidious. It's, you know, attacking our children. But for some reason, some of these other things like Robotech, Voltron, others, they hadn't, they hadn't, reached enough attention that I had to worry about. So I found these ways of sort of sneaking and, and finding and, and like carving out a little place in my heart where I was like, it's okay, guys, you can come in here. You're going to be safe. And I'm going to remember you back here. And then it, it just sort of like continued to grow. It was this thing that I was always looking for. I just didn't know what I was looking for. And then I remember Batman 89 had been such a huge impact. For me. I remember the awareness of it. But during that time, I'd filled things with like reruns of Battlestar Galactica, which was just spacefaring, you know, adventure on a smaller scale. But it was like, you know, weekly episodes of Star Wars. I, I love the Incredible Hulk. I love Bill Bixby. I thought he was just this wonderful encapsulation of a man who has this like wonderful power inside, but he can't control it. And it's so dangerous. And he's terrified of himself. Um, I remember along the way um, finding all sorts of great little pieces of Greatest American Hero, Knight Rider, things like that, that I could, you know, almost feel like these are, these are strands in a web. You know, these are connected to something more. Batman 89 brought me closer because suddenly this cartoon character in my mind, because I hadn't discovered comic yet, it had reach the movie stage and it was also such a dark and gritty you know version of him that i i i was curious as well as just like blown away at how original and different and then it was in that time frame i meet this really nice guy um josh Dieter. we're both at a private school my mom had been working on her teaching credential and was having trouble getting work at the time and the only school she could get work for was a Christian school that was also Pentecostal. Um, but after working there for like a year or two, they would not give her a raise. What they would do is give free tuition for her kids. So we got pulled out of sixth and fifth grade and we got enrolled in a private school uh, that was 30 minutes away from where we lived. So we rode to school with mom every morning and we ended up attending their seventh, eighth, and freshman year in high school. And it was in the uh, seventh grade, end of seventh grade, I met this kid named Josh. And the next year, we and two other friends became this, you know, 
geeky foursome. And he was the comic fan. He actually like had a job washing dishes at a restaurant so that he could then buy comics. And uh, he proceeds on my birthday that year to get me this one, which is not a comic most people have heard of. And it is a parody of the craziness that it erupted over the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie. He got me that and he got me Flash number 49 because the Flash was a character I had really grown to um, admire. He ran fast. For me, that was it. Of course, he gets me Flash number 49 with Wally West, which kills him. And I'm like, you jerk. Why would you buy me my first comic book of the Flash? And he dies. And I was like, what do I do now? And he goes, you buy the next issue. And I was like, what are you talking about the next issue? He's dead. And he's like, no, no, he comes back to life in the next issue. And I was like, you can do that. And, you know, immediately my brain's like trying to figure out this resurrection idea I've grown with my whole life. And then that was my introduction to the idea. Superheroes never die. They just, they just get resurrected at some point. So it took a little while. I think I ended up giving him some money and he got flash number 50 for me. And I'm like, he did. Okay. So the story keeps going. How do I get more? And then I discovered wonderfully that within the past year, maybe two brothers with a love of comics had opened a shop, the DeHoyo brothers, D-E-H-O-Y-O. And they had a love of comics and they had opened a comic shop in my tiny little town of Tracy. And I started figuring out how this paper route uh, that I had been working and the money I'd been saving had like this whole other use. <laughs> and I became a regular at the Hoyos Comics. I would bike on over there with friends. Um, and it became, it became a haven, it became this wonderful place. It was, it was a closet. It was not much bigger than the room I'm in right now. Like you walked in, you went straight back. There was a wall. There were walls. There was a register. That's it. You know, this thing couldn't have been more than like 300 square, 400 square feet of that. And uh, that became a refuge. That became this place where I could just come and stare um, and develop a friendship with these these guys who just loved comics and loved talking to me about them and didn't push me to buy anything other than what I wanted or what I read. And uh, when he learned that I loved The Flash, actually, at some point, he had all these great old 70s ones. And I was like, man, I would love to get these. Uh, what are the average prices on these? You know, and I'll, I'll start figuring out how I can come in and, and buy so many at a time. And he's like, do me a favor. I don't even know how many are in there. Can you count how many of those old 70s Flash issues are in there? Sure. So I ended up counting up something like 40 some odd comics. And he goes, how much you got on you? I was like, I think I got like 25 bucks. And he's like, sold. And I was like, I, I, the average comic is at least $2.99. Like, you know, and this is in the 90s. I, and he's like, you love them. You care about them. You'll treat them better than anyone else that can sell them. And in the meantime, they're taking up space and they're just going to fall apart because the people picking through them are just going to ruin them. So hauled this big stash home and ended up just diving into everything about it from the uh, like the tragedy of Barry and Iris and the trial and, and all these different things that came out, but also 
the different ads for books I'd never heard of before and characters who were like, who are these? And gradually from there, my introduction. Um, it was harder as I got in my late teens. The knee had gone bad. I needed to work. It was hard to have money for things like that. College was so expensive. There were girls. I discovered alcohol. It, it, it became difficult to find money for comics again for a while. But when all of those things just became unrewarding or unfulfilling, there would be times that I would leave my college campus and know that I had a couple hour break before I had to work after, after class. And I would stop at the local Barnes and Nobles or somewhere else and go to their graphic novel section and sit down on a bench with two or three books and feel comforted. Like I was back home wrapped in a favorite blanket in front of the fire, drinking hot cocoa. It felt safe. And I think that awareness was always something I was drawn back to. Uh, that's why in this little office space, uh, the shelves of comics, the, uh, the art on the wall, that sense of that space that I remember from such an early day that it was a place you could go, you know? It was a place that, that wasn't home or church or work or school. It's, it's its own world. And just like any great story, just like any great comic, the idea that you can step out and into a completely different world and, and know that. And sure, you have to come back, but not right away. And if you choose, not until the story's done or until you're willing to put a pause in the story. Knowing you've always got a story you can go back into, yeah, that's always been an amazing comfort for me. It, certain books, if you've ever reread them, it, it can feel like going back to the first time you read them. If you can go back to kindling that feeling that you first experienced the first time you enjoyed it. That awareness, that reminder, that memory, yeah, I, I think I think that's that place that is always been a refuge when it comes to my relationship to geek culture to comics to lord of the rings uh, to the J.R. tolkien series to the sword and sorcery and the fantasy books that i would fill in when comics were too expensive the library card was a, a free way to get more great stories i began to experience especially in my teenage years which is the perfect time to do it a series of disillusionments with that place that I'd grown up in. Uh, the first pastor we had got divorced. Um, the next one we got um, cheated on his wife not long after he was there. Uh, the next one we got was uh, stealing money, using money my dad was donating to send to missionaries he knew who were from his hometown in another country and found out that sometimes the church would take that money and use it for stuff it needed. Um, these, these things on top of flaws that I had already raised questions about and was more often told, you think too much, you need to just believe, you know, those sorts of uh, approaches to things had, had made it feel like, okay, well, this thing that said it was something isn't all the things that it said it was. And it would be great to know that something like this exists, that there's possibility, you know, that there is something I can hope for and, and believe or imagine that awareness allowed me to you know, find comics definitely and to and to find that 
where the possible or the impossible becomes possible, where all the unexpected can suddenly become true. It, it was always something that I had wanted, but it felt like something I couldn't access, you know, almost as though it, I'd started out in this place where you can't do this. And then gradually, well, you can, but there's consequences. And then it became this, well, you guys haven't always come through on a lot of the stuff you said. So now, <laughs> without fear of not being allowed to or fear of the consequences, what is over here that I've been trying to get to all this time? What What's over there? And it was like I could go and not worry the same way that I had, that I didn't feel guilt, that I didn't feel shame, that I didn't doubt myself or question myself. In fact, it, it became something where ah, I felt safe and I felt free and I felt grateful. And I also felt the tinges of you know, regret with the idea of it's been here so long and I only just got here. And I always wanted to be here, but I couldn't. And now I can't. Um, and that was an amazing sense of, of freedom and a sense of an interesting sense of independence, but also this sense of like faith rewarded. Like I always knew it was there. And once I could go there freely, I was right. It, it's not perfect. Everything's got its problems. But what I could see now, you know, what I could discover more, what I could learn about, because there weren't restrictions or consequences or fear. And that was probably the biggest thing. Um, this was something I would always wanted, but I'd been afraid of. This was something I'd always pursued. But tell people you're a writer when you're a teenager. Tell people you're a writer when you're in your early 20s. Tell people, man, you know, get ready for a lot. Get ready for a, you know, good luck. How are you going to do it? What it, you know, and you're constantly met with the fear of the unknown, the fear of, uh, is it even possible? And the more I could push that fear away, the more I could find this thing that I could go to that also said, push your fear away. You, you, you can be afraid and that's okay, but you can choose also to move beyond your fear. And that was something that always um, reignites my love with comics. I love those stories that that talk about the fears that you're experiencing, the human fears, reasonable, rational, and irrational fears. And there's a point where either the fears control you or you take control. And you make a choice about that, how you're going to deal with it, what you're going to do about it. And comics have always been one of those places where I could find a story that tells me that. In almost every genre, every company, every character, they're us. We're always facing these fears. We're constantly uh, facing these challenges, you know, and, and how do we do it? We look to great examples. We look to inspiration. Um, and it's been in comics where I've been most often to find that. Now, they've uh, been translated into audiobooks and movies and television shows, but the heart of it, the root of it, all goes back to sitting around a fire, fully aware that around you is darkness, 
depending on the, the time and place, there's little to no ambient light. And all you have is you and the fire and the darkness. Now, the darkness can be full of fear or, depending on the story you choose to tell, it can be full of possibility. How do we choose to deal with that darkness? You know, how do we choose to consider and confront that fear? One of the, the ways that we can look back to our history is to tell stories, stories of heroes, people who conquered fears, who conquered the impossible, the malevolent, the terrifying. And because of those examples, we can then say, I can do that. I can do that. You know, I can be here by the fire. I can see the darkness. I can face the fear of the unknown, the impossible. And because of that, I can share that with the next person. I can tell that story to someone else, share with them the moment that I could see fear for what it is. And then through that, share that same understanding. And if I'm lucky, the stories I tell offer that understanding, that idea of this is something that you've experienced too in your own way. And someone shared something that allowed me and through me this character to have an understanding. And if we can pass that understanding on to the next person, it's it's like writing to the canon. It's like uh, asking to add your name to that legacy. The whole goal is how long can we keep this thing going? You know, and the best way to do it is to keep adding to it, you know, keep fueling that fire, keep providing those things that give light to others and allows them to see. Okay. I see myself in this, and I also see what I'm able to do, much like this example that I'm seeing, hearing. It's it's an opportunity to, to share with us, you know, these these moments that others have experienced that we can connect to. And it's like, it's an amazing connection that we can then take and then share. You know, we can we can do something with this, and we've got the resources to go and find it. Um, and because of that, I mean, I'm grateful to every story. I can distinctly remember sitting in the backyard, my mom on a lawn chair, my sister and I, and she's reading um, Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis, and it's sunny, and I can close my eyes and hear the story and picture the story, and from that point, you know, take all of the ideas that come from hearing, imagining. And then say, I wonder what I can do. <laughs> it's an amazing possibility. And if someone else, you know, gets that from a story I wrote or told, I did my job. You know, I, I, I was able to be part of that process of, I got it. I got it. Hey, your turn. <laughs> and in, in picking up and then passing on, it's like, okay, now you know the deal, right? You got to find somebody else. You know, this is how it works. We keep getting, we keep giving. And um, I can keep doing that. You know, I can, I can feel as connected to that as so many other great experiences have offered to me. You know, that idea of, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it. And putting something into a story. I mean, even when it's one of these comic scripts where I'm fully aware that my audience is a much younger age because it's geared towards kids. But I'm fully aware of the fact that 
I've read things in children's comics, you know, whether it was uh, all the the funnies from Peanuts and everything in the, the Sunday newspapers to Asterix the Gaul to other, you know, Tintin and others that I was lucky enough to discover where, sure, it's a comic, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have value and opportunity. And I get to do it with this great character, Greedy Greg, who's like, hey, <laughs> these are all of the wrong ways to go about things. And these are the things that can be learned along the way. It can be funny. It can be helpful. It can also be heartwarming. Um, I recently got to write, uh, we have a Christmas issue, and I got to create a character called Ernest Lee. And Ernest Lee has been sent by his mom to stay with his uncle Greg because the hope is that young Ernest Lee will rub off on Uncle Greedy Greg and and maybe change his heart a little bit at Christmas. I've watched the Charlie Brown Christmas special since I was old enough to understand what it meant. And that's a story that never fails to share the whole spirit of Christmas idea. You know, from all of its wrong ways of doing things to Linus talking in front of a microphone, explaining what everyone else has been missing all this time. Well, I'm getting the right Christmas comic script. And I know what I've already learned. If I get the chance to put something similar into another one, I've done it. I've completed the process, took that great thing that someone inspired in me, turned around and put it out there for someone else to read and enjoy. Now... I hope, like everyone else, that they're going to take that thing and pick it up, carry it with them, and do the next process, which is share it again, whatever way they can, however way they want. You can hear more from Seth on his various podcasts. Storytelling with Seth. Stories from the Pitch. Available on Elevation 5280 Sports. The Spinner Rack, available on the DC Comics News Podcast Network. And the DC Comics News Main Show. Greedy Greg is available on hapsie.com, H-A-P-S-I-E. And his book, This is a Language of Fists, is available on Amazon. You can contact Seth on Twitter at OneMoreSingleton or his website, SethSingletonStoryteller.com. All links available in the show notes. Geek is a super dummy production for Fantastic Universes. Find out more at fantasticuniverses.com and superdummy.co.uk slash geek. You can contact the show on Twitter at Era of Geek or by email geek at superdummy.co.uk. You can support the show and Fantastic Universes by joining our Patreon, patreon.com slash fantasticuniverses. <laughs>